Oh, what's going on now? What is it? Okay, I'm on the air now. <laughs> but uh, if you, um, in, in uh, 2 Timothy 3, 4 and 5, uh, would you stand as we read this, these two verses, please? In fact, let me just go ahead and start from the beginning so we get the full, full the flow of it. Uh, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revelers, uh, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious, gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, uh, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power and avoid such men as these. Thank you, Stephen. As I was looking at this passage of Scripture, and by the way, I, I've had these passages of Scripture as a quiet time. I go through them, and I, and I, have, I, I listen to what God has to say. I, I go through and do all the word study. I do all the necessary studying that's in the passages of Scripture. And then it's kind of like having my own commentary. And so I sit down when, uh, when God says, okay, I need you to go ahead and do this or preach this. And I look at that passage of Scripture and I say, oh, good, I've already done some of the, a lot of the work I needed to do. And so uh, I'm thankful for that. But, uh, I wanted to help you see here also in this passage of Scripture that he says that the greatest danger is the love of self. When you say the love of self, what you're saying is basically is that I love me more than I love God. And if you say I love me more than I love God, that is what we call idolatry. So when we say the greatest danger in the church is self-love, what we're basically saying is that that self-love is idolatry. So that's really the greatest danger is idolatry within the church. And idolatry is something that not only the church, but Israel has gone through so for years and years and years and years is idolatry. And God hates idolatry. Does He not? He hates it. Because He, I, you know, I can't hardly even imagine having someone make some kind of an idol that looks like Luke and, and just pays attention to this person, this thing, this rock, this piece of wood that looks like Luke. I think that would be an insulting. Would that not to you? And and for for God to say this man makes this idol and says this is God, that's insulting. That's very insulting. And God says, I hate that. I hate that. That's idolatry. So the greatest danger in the church is idolatry. If you turn to Deuteronomy four twenty three. Deuteronomy 4.23, you get a glimpse or an understanding of what God is saying about idolatry. So watch yourselves, that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which He made with you, and and make for yourselves a graven image, the form of anything against the Lord your God has commanded you. So there's an understanding in Deuteronomy that tells us that we are not to have any kind of idolatrous figures. But see, sometimes Christians 
have idolatry that is really not an idol, but yet it's still an idolatry. It's something that we put in the place of God. Something that we love more than we love God. So there's four things, four times that this word philos is used within this passage of Scripture. And I want to be able to go over each one of these. Philos means fond, loving, tender, affectionate. And and as you, I imagine that you remember the time when Jesus spoke to Peter and said, Do you agape me more than these? And what did Peter say? He said, Lord, you know that I feel I, feel I owe you. And what really grieved Peter was when the last time that Jesus asked him that, Jesus didn't use the word agape, he used the word phileo. He says, do you really, are you really fond of me? Do you really have affection for me? And that grieved him because he was even questioning him as to whether or not he had an affection for him. So this affection, this this philaltos, is the first time that it's used within our chapter. It's used in verse 2. And this is a, a love for self. Love for self is idolatry. Is idolatry. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Matthew twenty two thirty seven says And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The implications to soul here is the spirit. And with all your mind. Now, let me ask you this question. Since he says all, then what? how much part of that is left over for you? <laughs> there isn't anything. All my mind, all my soul, all my strength, that means that there's nothing I have left over for me to love myself. Because I'm loving God. I love God with all, all I have. But notice that there's other times that he says in relationship to the uh, love. He says in uh, verse 39 of Matthew 22. And the, and, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what does that mean? Well, he didn't say all. That's in relationship to God. But that is to put my neighbor before me. That's Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Then Ephesians 5.25. You husbands going to love this one. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for uh, up uh, on its behalf. How uh, that that is to put my wife first. That is to sacrificially love my wife, as the scriptures indicate that Jesus did for the church. <laughs> well, second time that philos is used, it's used in the form of uh, philoguros. Philoguros. Fond of money. Now, I just need to say that. Fond of money would just give you the indication that money becomes a god. Okay? Now, it's not always that case. 
It depends upon where money is in your life. But in Luke 16.13, it says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, verse 14, after Jesus had just said that, verse 14 says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, okay, lovers of money, that's their God. I used to, I used to refer to the Pharisees as a mafia. Uh, I really believe they were. They were a mafia. They were more interested in making money off of the sacrifice and the sacrifices than they were interested in the people getting their sacrifices. So now the, the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. Why were they scoffing at him? Because they were lovers of money. And Jesus was speaking against it. In 1 Timothy 3.3 3, 1 Timothy 3.3 3, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Free from the love of money. Now, in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Love of money. Destroy your life. Well, the third time that philos is used is used with philagathos. Philagathos. Well, it's really of philagathos. And philagathos is is good. And the little a before uh, of philagathos is, is the negative. So that means haters of good. Haters of good. Well, as I was studying this passage of Scripture and thinking about it, the question came to my mind, well, do I hate good? And I thought, no, I don't hate good. I'm glad that people, uh, are, and there's good that's being done for them. Well, this verse of Scripture came to my mind. It was found in Romans 8.28. and very familiar to you. But notice what it says again. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God. All things to work together for good. That means that God is causing the trials and the tribulations and the things that take place in my life and making them become good. But see, the way that I perceive them is not always good. I don't always perceive them to be good. I sometimes perceive them to be bad. I look at the child and I say, Oh me, why is this happening to me? And so I have the, I have the tendency to hate the good. And see, what God says is that we don't hate the good. We love the good. But, I guess in the tendency, I may be one of those that hates good. Because I'm not understanding what God's doing in my life. So everything that God brings into our lives is good. It doesn't make any difference how we perceive them to be. They're always good. They're always good. So 
so <clears throat> don't hate them. The fourth philos that's used in this passage of Scripture is the, the word philedonos. It means the fond of pleasure. Fond of pleasure. Now this is where we come to the verse of Scripture that I need to pick up. I wanted to give you those four philos and show you how that is kind of a review in a sense. But here in this passage of Scripture, this is really, I mean, it hits to the core. It is, do I love pleasure more than I love God? Well, let's share some things with you in regards to that. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, 1 Corinthians 10.31, notice what that says here. Then when it, wherever, whenever you eat, whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. Now, the question has got to be asked is, what's pleasure? Well, whatever you do, eat or drink. Well, we love to eat and drink. Is that not true? We have parties that we invite. In fact, we just had a barbecue not too long ago and we all met over there and we met over there to just look at the food because we felt like it would not be good for us to eat the food because that might not be glory to God, right? Is that what we did? No, we didn't. We just consumed. (laughs) So he's saying, whatever you eat or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. So is eating and drinking... Sin? No. We've got to eat and we've got to drink. But it depends upon whether you eat or drink, whether you're eating as a lifestyle or whether you eat or drink to stay alive. But it is still pleasurable. Or we wouldn't do it. Right? We wouldn't do it. We wouldn't eat. All activities are pleasurable. We don't just say, well, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do this. I don't really want to. And we do it because it's pleasure. It's activity. So, do we do it because we love the pleasure? Or does the pleasure become to consume us? Are we consumed by the pleasure to where we isolate God from our lives? That happens. That happens. So when is pleasure wrong? And the answer that many of us would give is uh, that it uh, we got to make sure that it brings glory to God, right? Well, I asked that question, and this is the thought that came into my mind. How do I know that it brings glory to God? How do I know that that by me doing the pleasurable things is that I'm loving the pleasure more than I'm loving God? How do, how do I know that? Well, there is a little word that is in between the lover of pleasure and the lover of God. And the Greek word is malon. And it means rather than. It is more than or better than. And Jesus gives us uh, um, several passages of scriptures that deals with that. Malon. And... Uh, 
And I thought it was very interesting because, see, what that's saying is that it's a comparison, that's a comparison between one statement and another statement, okay? And so what you're saying is what, what does have more intrinsic value? This statement here or this statement over here? So rather than is that Milan and what he's saying is what has in most an intrinsic value to you? Okay? So listen to these verses. Or look them up if you like. In Matthew 6, 26, Jesus says this, Look at the birds of the air that they, they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Now, no, here's your Milan. Are you not worth much more than they? So the, the Milan there, the much more, the rather than, is that we have more intrinsic value to God than a bird. Now, isn't that wonderful? I'm glad that I have more intrinsic value than a bird. Okay? Even though I enjoy listening to the birds sing, but I have more intrinsic value than they do. Matthew 7.11 says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your, to your children, and here's the Milan, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? So which one has the most intrinsic value? Is it what I give to my children or is it what God gives to me? Well, obviously, that's a no-brainer. What is most intrinsic value there is that is what God gives to me than what I give to my children. John 3.19 says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and that men love the darkness. Here's the Milan rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So, what's the Milan? What's the most intrinsic value? For a lost man is that he loves his darkness more than he loves the light. So, where does he dwell? Dwells in the darkness. He hides in the darkness. He doesn't want his deeds to be exposed. John twelve forty three. For the love, the approval of men, Milan here, rather than the approval of God. The Pharisees walked about seeking the praise of man and the most intrinsic value to them was the praise of man over the praise of God. And many ministers find themselves in that type of particular. They're listening for what the parishioners have to say and they're looking for the praise of men more than they are looking for the praise of God. Now, do we love pleasure rather than... Are we lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God? Well, we have a comparison again in this verse. And the verse is, what is most intrinsic of value to you? Is the pleasure most, most important to you? Or is God most important to you? So that's what God, that's what Paul's saying in this verse of Scripture, is that he is giving us an understanding that, that if we have pleasure over God, it's idolatry. Pure and simple.
idolatry. So what does God have pleasure in? You know, as I got finished with that, I got to thinking about that, and I said, well, what does God have pleasure in? You know, God does have pleasure in things. And I began to look at some passages of Scripture, and and I'm not going to comment much on these. I just want to read them, and I want you to just listen to them, or if you like, you can turn them up. But I'm going to go fast through them, and you're going to say, slow down, slow down, I can't get to them. But just don't, don't worry about that. But I just want you to hear, what does God have pleasure in? What does God have pleasure in? Psalms 149.4 For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. Wow, man, that just man, that just blessed my heart. God takes pleasure in us. I just, I, that's great, man. I think, oh, God takes pleasure in me. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. Mm. Isaiah forty six ten. Boy, listen to this. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure you know it, got, it brought God pleasure to create the heavens and the earth he said it was good Isaiah 53.10 but the Lord was pleased to crush him who's him? that's Jesus that's right. It pleased his father to crush him. Putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Wow. Philippians 2.13 for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His what? Good pleasure. God is in work in your life and He's building His good pleasure in you. He's building character in you. Colossians 1.19 For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, Jesus Christ. All the fullness. You know, when you think of all, that means there's nothing outside of the all, right? That encompasses everything. So all, all the fullness is in that. Now the question that has come to my mind after I read those, would it not honor the Lord for us to take pleasure in the things that God takes pleasure in? Would that not be true? Well, let's come back down to earth again and uh, let's look at at, uh, verse 5. Having the form of godliness, self-centered church members are nothing but a form of godliness. Uh, Now, I, I, I need to clarify this statement because I don't want you to think that Well, sometimes I'm self-centered. Well, I'm not talking about the times that we do become self-centered. I'm talking about a lifestyle. 
I'm talking about a person who lives that way. It's his lifestyle. He is self-centered. He can think of nobody else but himself. He's the utopia of everything. Now, there's the word form, morphosis, is an image. There's no reality in it. There's just fiction, empty fiction at that. There's no truth. There's no foundation of truth. It's just air. It's just a mirage. The form of godliness has nothing in it. It's just an appearance of godliness. That's all it is. It just appears to be godly. And you know, it snows us. It blows us away. We can't fathom the concept. Oh, this guy is a phony. Well, to get down too hard on ourselves, let's, let's look a little closer here what we're talking about. These are people who are crept in unawares. Jude, Jude tells us in Jude 1.4. Jude 1.4. If you can turn to that, I'll, I'll wait just a second for you to get there because I do want you to see what that verse of Scripture has to say. <clears throat> now, I know that when I would preach to other churches, I would tell them where Jude is. But I know that you, you folks are scholars, and so I don't need to tell you where Jude is. <clears throat> For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Deny. Disown. Don't believe in. Don't want anything to do with. Now, what is their motive? Why do they do this? The motive is to distort the truth. That, that, that's the motive. They're crept in unawares. They're self-centered church members. They come into a church, join a church, and their motive is to distort the truth. That's it. That's what they want to do. The word paraistano is the word for creeper or crept in. I call them a creep. The creeps sneak in. Okay? And they come in unnoticed. You know what parase dano means? It means to lodge alongside of. You think about that. This person has come in to lodge alongside of you. That's like an ISIS Islamic person coming into your neighborhood and lodging near you. That's a scary thought. You say, oh man, I don't want someone like that in my neighborhood. Yeah, what about in your church? What about one who sits right next to you? What about a person who creeps in and all he wants to do is tell you, you know, that guy's not even telling you the truth. You ought not to listen to what he's saying. You know what that is somebody that gets people along the side and tells them and says, you know, I'm going to tell you something about what truth is, but it's really, I mean, your pastor's not really teaching you the truth, but I can tell you what truth is. 
These are creepers. These are self-centered. These are self-centered people who get into the church and all they're interested in is distorting the truth. That's all they want to do. Do you know that Judas was a form of godliness? You think about that. Judas was a form of godliness. And you talk about someone knowing that he was a form of godliness? When Jesus sat at the Lord's Supper and he says, one of you are going to deny me, and they all looked at Judas and said, it's Judas. Did they do that? No. Why didn't they? Because they never detected him. It never crossed their mind. It went over their heads. Jesus said that I chose 12 of you and one of you is a devil. Jesus knew that Judas was a devil. But the other disciples didn't know. Three years he walked in their midst. Three years he lodged with them. And he was a storter of the truth. Denied Jesus Christ. He was never a part of the group. He always was outside looking in. Never a part. All those who assume the form of godliness are goat workers. I mean, that's the truth. I mean, they're not sheep workers. They're goat workers. And who are they working for? Their father. They're Satan. And so they're following out what Satan has for them to do. Satan hates the church, folks. And you know that. He hates the church with a bitter passion. And he hates this church because we teach the truth. He hates that. And he would do anything he could to try to keep this church from growing because he doesn't want the truth to keep on going out. But you know, God's truth is going out of this church even though it's not growing like we would like to see it numerically. But it is growing because it is going out. The truth is being. And no matter what Satan is trying to do, he still, he's dwarfed it. He can't. He can't do it. The word having or holding in our passage in verse 5, five it says having uh, a form of godliness. The, the, the word having is echo. It's, a, it's the vocabulary form and the textual form is exantes. Exantes is present tense active voice. Present tense active voice. That means that they're holding to a form of godliness and they continue to hold to a form of godliness. That is just what they are. They will continue. That is their their realm. Holding to the form of godliness is their human realm of ability. They do it all in the flesh. But they deny the true power. And that's the dunamis power. So the dunamis power comes from the Holy Spirit. The dunamis power comes from the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 3.16, that He should grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. That we will be strengthened in the inner man by dunamis power, which is the Spirit of God that gives it to us. Therefore, I want to share 
four verses with you that has some really strong principles to them. The first one, we receive the power when we are humble. When we're weak. Notice what Notice what Paul says, and please turn to this, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. When did Paul receive his strength? He was weak. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. You mean to tell me that I've got to be humble in order for me to get the strength of God? I mean, I, I can't be have a little bit of pride. I can't be self-centered. I mean, I've got to be weak. You know, what is the concept of weakness with the world today? Frail. Someone who's... Uh, uh, has a problem with, with, with not being able to do something that, that, that he's, he's not strong. That you know, well, that is the key ingredient for the kingdom of God. It's being weak, <laughs> and that's so opposite. Secondly, or B, this is the strength that we are to function in in Colossians one eleven. Now, I'm going to kind of keep on moving along because I've got a lot to cover and, 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 and I'm doing pretty good. I know you guys thought I wouldn't be able to cover those two pages of handouts that you had. Keep it weak. You, you what? Keep it weak. Keep it weak. <laughs> Thank you. I will. I will. I will. Thank you for the reminder. <laughs> oh, my. The conscience sometimes works in strange ways. This is the strength and the function in. It's Colossians 1.11. Strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. Strengthened with all power. You know, what does that mean to you? What that means to me is that when God assigns me a task, He strengthens me with all power to accomplish that task. Don't expect me to do it in my own power. See, it is power that overrides our fears. It's power that overrides our fears. And Second Peter, I mean Second Timothy one seven, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power. And D, it is the power that has been granted to us. Second Peter one three. Seeing that His divine power has granted us everything that pertains to life and, and godliness. Everything. So He's given us the power to be able to excel in everything if we are weak. This is a form of godliness. This is what it is. Godliness is Eusebia. It's made up of two words. U is well, and and Amahi is devout. So, it is a clarification of a person who is devout unto God, devoted unto God. 
<clears throat> in 1 Timothy 4.7, but having to do with what? But having to do with... Wait a minute. Let me catch back what I want to say here. This is a form of godliness. It is the four other passages I want to use for clarification. I missed that on my notes. I wanted you to know what are the four things that clarifies, what are the four things that are principles in, in, in understanding what I need to do to be godly. What does it mean to be godly? You know, I took this for granted, folks. I just, I'll just be honest with you. Uh, I took for I took it for granted. I was just thinking, well, godliness means that you just have holy character. Well, godliness means that you just have self-control over yourself. I mean, the, the things that you want. That's what godliness. But once I got into this, I began to start seeing some things. I said, whoa. So let me let me share these four principles with you that are hinged to four passages of Scripture. In 1 Timothy 4, 7, but having, to, but having nothing to do with worldly fables, fit for only old women. Now, here's the part of the verse. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You know, godliness doesn't grow by age. You know? I mean, there's people who have been church members for 40 years, and they're no more godly than a 15-year-old boy that just got born again. So godliness does not grow as age. Quite the contrary. Younger people are more godlier than older people. It takes discipline. It takes discipline. What? does it mean by discipline? Well, the discipline is, is, which is a restraint from the things we ought not to do, and it is obedience in the things we ought to do. Now, that, that's, that, that's worth saying again, isn't it? Discipline, which is a restraint from the things we ought not to do, and an obedience in the things we ought to do. That's a discipline. Disciplining me. That I have a restraint and I have obedience. Secondly, Paul clarifies this statement in verse 8. Now in verse 7, he says, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. Verse 8, he says, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. For godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Note there is a difference between bodily discipline and godly discipline. Bodily discipline is, is, is not bad. We need to have bodily discipline. We need to take care of our bodies. We need to exercise. We need to eat the right types of foods. But bodily, bodily uh, discipline is, is a physical benefit and only lasts for a little while. But godly discipline profits for a, for a for not just the present life, but the life hereafter. So godly discipline is much better to have. Thirdly, First Timothy six six. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Oh my, oh my. 
When I read that, God just blew me away. I'm just want to, I just want you to know that. God blew me away. Okay. Listen to this. <clears throat> to be content is to have the ability to listen and to comprehend. To, to, let, me, let me rephrase that. To be content is the ability to listen, to listen, and to comprehend. Ah. But to be disgruntled over life makes one unteachable. I can reflect in my back life that there's been times that I was disgruntled about the things that were happening in my life and I was not teachable. Nobody could come into my life and teach me. I was not teachable by someone else. I was not teachable by God. But when I got content in my life, I became teachable. I listened. I comprehended. That's the reason why it says that it's great gain. Godliness is great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. I didn't know that. I do now. I'm 65 years old and I'm saying, God, why is it that I have to learn it now? Why didn't I learn to learn it when I was 35? You know why? Because I was disgruntled. And I wouldn't have listened to it anyhow. Fourthly, Second Peter 1.3, Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness... Through true knowledge of Him who called us by His glory and excellence. Godliness is granted with divine power to achieve. He wants us to achieve that. So, when we look at these four principles, what are they? The four principles are this. One, it takes discipline with a restraint, which is restraint and obedience. <clears throat> Two, there's the eternal rewards for discipline of godliness. Three, one must be content in order to be teachable in the things of godliness. Four, godliness comes with the power of God to achieve the character He desires for us. Four principles. The form of godliness is absent in a self-centered church member. You know why? He has no fruit. There's no fruit. You show me a man who is godly, and I'll show you a man whose walk is 30, 40, and 60-fold in fruitfulness. Jesus said, by their fruits, you will know them. We are commanded to turn away from these people. And when he says turn away, what does that really mean, turn away? That means put them out of the church. That means once you come to find out that they are unfruitful, it's time to put them out of the church. 
You know why people don't want to do that today? Because they've come to love them. They've come to love them and they just can't put them out of the church. I said, but that's cruel. That's wrong. Oh, well, yeah. But it's destroying the church and they're destroying the church, but it's really cruel to put them out. You know. But, you know, that's that's the part of what Paul... This is, this is, this is a command. This is in the imperative mood. Turn away. He's not saying, listen, if you feel like it, turn away. Or if you, if you can get over the fact that you love these people, you know, then maybe you might just kind of say, okay, you can stay. I said, no, turn away. Turn away from them. To deny them. Oninomai is in the perfect tense. They deny the power thereof. And the reason why they denied the power thereof is because they rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. They denied Him. And they're sitting alongside of you. Or they're sitting alongside of a church member. And they denied Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they're out to destroy the church. And now to destroy the truth. I cringe sometimes at uh, churches that uh, are supposed to be God's chosen people. Some churches, and and and, but my greatest grief is that the church has married the world. And uh, and now, when I go into a church to preach, I, I don't know whether I'm preaching to a bunch of heathens or if I'm preaching to the elect. I don't know. And it really grieves me. And I, and I, think, I think, well, Lord, when is it going to take place where God is going to purge the church? When would that take place? When would that happen? You know, I think that when there is a persecution against the church, there will be a great exodus out of the church. Those self-centered people that are in the church are going to make a beeline to the door because they don't want anything to do with being persecuted. And there will be those that are in the church that have played church for many years, they're going to make a beeline to to the doors. But it's the elect of God that say, "No, I'm staying put. I'm going to worship the Lord. I don't care what they do to me. I will not deny Him." Let's pray. Well, Father, I want to thank you for this passage of Scripture. And the delight that it was for me to study it and to enjoy your presence in it. And Father, I pray that it was also the delight of these who are hearing the word of God, that it was a delight to them. That that to be what we need to be in the way of godliness. And how that we need to demonstrate that godly walk before others. Father, thank you for instructing us in the word. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that 
that we are a pleasure to you and that you take great delight in teaching us. It it, it brings joy to you. And Father, I, I pray that our lives would bring you joy, that we would honor you and that we would enjoy the things that you have pleasure in. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Pastor, it's yours. You got it for next week. Are you putting me on the spot? Yes, sir, you betcha.